Andrew, this is going to be a little rough going the first time for this inaugural podcast from Hit and Run History. Between the short setup time, Skyping, five participants, there are a few issues going on that we need to troubleshoot for our next episode. Hi folks, this is Jay Shan, producer of this first Hit and Run History podcast. For this very first episode, we hit a few snags in the production. You might hear a few echoes from the Skype or some feedback. We had planned this simply as a pilot, with lots to leave on the cutting room floor. But the conversations actually turned out so well, we thought maybe if we explained, told you what to expect, and let you listen for yourself, you might agree and give us a chance again in our second podcast. This is what happens when you record audio only in a TV studio for the first time. Thanks for understanding, and enjoy this pilot episode from Hit and Run History. From the Emmy Award-winning Cape Cod Community Media Center, this is Hit and Run History. Hello, I'm Andrew Buckley, creator and host of Hit and Run History. It is January 15th, 2013. This is our very first podcast, the Which Avenger Was Harriet Beecher Stowe edition. We've created this podcast as a way to discuss the latest in history, featured in books, movies, and, yes, in the news. We plan to do this on a regular basis, in addition to our regular documentary series of the same name. We're not academics, but like you, just observers and fans of history, and always on the lookout for something new about something old. This week's show has three parts. First, American Experience debuts its series, The Abolitionists, on PBS. Second, History Pen, crowdsourcing, geotagging, and curating our way to clarity online. John Voss of History Pen will be talking with us about a map created for the abolitionists and how anyone can make their own. Third, we'll be joined by Kathleen Wall of Plymouth Plantation to talk about food of the abolitionist era and sample treat she's made. Then we'll round up a recommendation by each of us, something new or overlooked about history we'd like to share. Joining me in the studio is Ed O'Toole, a columnist for the Barnstable Patriot and an educator of English, theater, and history for almost 30 years. And joining us remotely is Michelle Barkley, an author and columnist for Examiner.com and CBS Boston. Premiering this week on PBS, The Abolitionist is the latest production of American Experience, the WGBH powerhouse that brought us such masterpieces as Eyes on the Prize and Vietnam, a television history. Admittedly, The Abolitionist is a massive topic. In their own words, American Experience says, the movement spanned decades, the leaders were numerous, the history complicated, and the scholarly literature voluminous. Over three one-hour episodes spanning as many weeks, the series tracks the beginnings, evolution, and eventual success of the anti-slavery movement against all odds by focusing on a handful of key players, Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, Harriet Beecher Stowe, John Brown, and Angelina Grimke. first episode, which we've watched, opens not in the slave-free North, but surprisingly in Charleston, South Carolina, with Grimke coming to terms with her family's affluence and virtual whole reason for being resting on the backs of their slaves. I think that's quite a disarming device for those who are expecting to see something more puritanical and male. I, I actually really enjoyed that the focus was on Garrison. Um, because he seems to be overlooked a lot. You know, you hear a lot of names like um, Tubman and, um, you know, in school and everything, but I'd never heard of Garrison until I got older and decided to study this era in history myself. Um, so I liked that the focus was on him and was on, you know, the dangers of, of publishing the kind of things that he was publishing. Because um, I think it really gives you 
a, a glimpse into how difficult and, and dangerous it was. And But I definitely liked that it opened not only in the South and not with Garrison, but with a female as well. Um, because that, there's an even another added danger. So while Garrison was risking, you know, his life and his career, um, Grimke was risking her, her family, um, everything. She couldn't go back home. Um, so it was really, I think that was a fantastic way to open it up because at, at that point, women, you know, didn't really have a voice and, and she decided to make hers heard. So I think it's, it's definitely an, an eye opener. And I think people will really appreciate that, that new perspective. Yeah. And I, I think that the, um, the other thing that, in, that, that's really important is with Grimke, she focused on her, um, her Christianity and she was, uh, they said almost not, not as concerned about the slavery, the slaves themselves so much as the fact that she was worried of what it was going to do to her family and yeah, the slave almost, owners. Yeah, it was almost a selfish beginning for her. Yeah, um, what's, what's going to happen to my eternal soul if I'm uh, a slaveholder and, and slavery yeah, is sinful? Exactly. We're all going to hell. So uh, that's, that's enlightened self-interest right there. Of course, it does... Um, uh, turn on Garrison, the uh, white northerner who uh, goes first to Baltimore, where, where slaves are. You know, it was, a, it was a mixed city with free blacks as well as slaves. But Ed, yeah. maybe you can talk a little bit about um, uh, Garrison. Yeah, actually, I'd like to link Garrison, Stowe, and Frederick Douglass, who are all part of this uh, particular discussion. What, what appealed to me as a, <clears throat> a lover of literature, I guess, was how important the printed word was in spreading the abolitionist gospel, if you want to call it that, and the different approaches that each one of them took. Of course, Garrison was a journalist, and so you had that sense of immediacy and, and, and the clarion call that, that he gave, and, and, and a lot of it seemed almost religiously inspired. But what I love about, uh, for instance, Harriet Beecher Stowe, here's another woman who's involved in this, and uh, she... Uh, I, th I think for several reasons she's interested in the abolitionist movement, not the least of which are her idealistic notions, but also the fact that she lived the life of a typical uh, American woman in this Victorian era who really had not experienced as much as she probably would have liked to, and I think saw a parallel in her life to the lives, lives of the slaves. But even, even with the, um, the fact that she starts off in Cincinnati, Yes. I mean, right, right, right on the edge, yeah. and it's not until she goes across to Kentucky right. and she sees the brutality of, yes. of of the slave auction and and families being you know sold down the river and, and broken apart. That, and that was uh, really her only experience with it firsthand. And yet she has this writer's or this artist's knack of being able to uh, convey what it must have been like for the the slaves. And and I think what she did and what Douglas did as well were that they. Uh, personalize the issue so that you actually mm -hmm. saw the way this happened. This wasn't dealt with in the, in the abstract. You know, oh, well, the South has a slave-based economy and those people work on a, on a plantation and that's simply the way it is. But these people developed personalities and um, we could put a face to these names. And I think and Douglas's was um, particularly um, grueling, really, as a story yeah. of, of growing up a slave. Jump in, Shelley. Oh, I was absolutely agree um right from the get-go his life was was difficult and and i've always found it kind of interesting how he didn't develop this kind of raging hatred for for white people he educated himself he you know secretly and and he fought back and i think that that kind of heroic 
uh, measure is what people are looking for. You know, when, when you hear about stuff like this, you're waiting to hear about that person who kind of rose up against it because you can't, as a modern human and in, in, in the United States, you can't fathom this kind of uh, institution happening right under everybody's noses. So you're waiting for that, that person with enough indignation to step up and, and fight back. And Douglas was that person. And ironically, when Garrison and Douglas um, talked or communicated, what, what have you, it was, it was Douglas's belief that the Constitution could uh, be adapted. In other words, that, that slavery was not really part of the Constitution, that, that the Constitution was the way to work uh, through the problems of slavery. And Garrison felt that the Constitution was uh, imbued with slavery from the beginning, that it was basically, uh, in a sense, almost a, uh, a, sat a satanic, in the, in the metaphorical sense, document. It's interesting to be able to track how Garrison goes from you know, very wide-eyed idealist, yep. and he goes down to Baltimore, comes back, and starts uh, um, the Liberator, um, and was able to and and founded that um, to a great deal by um, uh, free black abolitionists mm -hmm. and yeah. themselves, and so to be able to do that, but then to have it turn against him and for him to realize that, you know, Christianity, appealing to people's Christianity and appealing to their, um, you know, sense of, of, of justice wasn't going to do it when it was so ingrained in the um, economy. But at the same time, uh, you know, he, get, he gets, he starts, after the printing press is, is burned down by a mob in Boston, um, he is feeling like, no, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't even vote anymore. He's, mm -hmm. he's becoming, you know, uh, even more pure um, and removing himself from society, which is, you know, not going to do the trick. Uh, it, it seems to me so many social changes, so many big reforms of of um, uh, the, the culture, they 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 are not um, they are not brought about by just going in one particular direction. You know, violence doesn't always work by itself, and and the whole notion, as you mentioned, Andrew, of appealing to somebody's uh, better angels. You know, the whole notion that uh, well, you're a Christian, you really shouldn't be for this. That's all. It, it seems as if those motives are only going to appeal to certain segments of the population, and until all of them come together somehow, um, you, you just don't have the societal change that you want. And of course, uh, many people felt that it was simply going to be a war that was going to settle all this, that that was inevitable. And, you know, maybe, I, I suppose you could make a, your point that uh, it, it was the Civil War that did it plain and simple. Shelley, I was going to ask you, the, the, the one thing that I, I pulled out of this, actually two things, but first of it is um, mobility. First you have um, Garrison, who goes from Boston to Baltimore and back again. Well, you, have, you start off with Grimke, who pretty much can't, can't reconcile herself with her, her family's um, uh, <laughs> means of, of supporting themselves, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and heads off to Philadelphia. And Harry Peter Stowe, who you know, moves eventually from Cincinnati to... Uh, New England itself, and so people are moving around a great deal. So not just printed word, but but of the time transportation, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. the fact that people can get around by steamboat or they can get around by the railroad, railroad. Yeah. and and such. So word is traveling a lot faster. Yeah. And so I was I was hoping uh, you'd be able to speak to that, Shelley. When you have situations like that where people are finally you know sheltered, women like Grimke are able to move out of their, their normal circle, um, you're seeing a lot more, um, they're, they're witnessing more culture, different viewpoints. They're seeing slaves being harmed and then places where there are no slaves. 
they're talking to a lot of different people who have a lot of different opinions. And I think like today, where we have so much communication, you're able to develop opinions that are, are perhaps outside of what you were raised with. Um, and I think that, you know, given, you know, we had the railroads, you know, coming, the North was changing as far as the, their feelings on slavery and, um, and whether or not you could have slaves. So people were seeing places where there were no slaves, which in, had been unheard of for a long time. You're seeing um, people's uh, opinions evolve and then they're sharing those opinions. And of course, then you're having women speak out where they weren't speaking out before and becoming more brave. But it really does really does raise the question of whether or not that was enough, whether or not that developing um, sense of culture um, and that sharing of moral ideals was going to be enough to change anything, really, um, because it did come down to violence. Um, so you have to wonder if what, what they were doing and what they were learning really mattered much in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, in, in, in many ways it's interesting because um, of the, the furor that's caused by Grimke's pamphlet that she writes. Again, with a printed word, you've got you know, Garrison writing and Grimke writing, and there and it may, be, may be a newspaper, it might be this or that, but I mean, I think we're, you know, you're starting to see, uh, dare I say it, the, the, the first bloggers. Yeah, I was going to say when Shelley was talking, transportation, which provided the mobility, was really it was the seed of social media at the time. You know that with with and and ideas probably had obviously had never spread quite so rapidly as they would have as a result of that. And the other thing that kind of strikes me is, um, you know, that while slavery was uh, enabling all sorts of um, uh, economic. Expansion, especially in the South, but in the you know it, 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 in, in, indirectly the North sure. too. But uh, you suddenly are, are getting on the other side. You know the abolitionists are coming from often you know affluent places. I think I think the abolitionist movement is a um, is a byproduct of that affluence. You've got people who can travel, um, who don't have to work very hard. Mm -hmm. um, you know they, we're we're now in the late eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties. So we're about 50 years after the American Revolution. The, the American economy has really taken off and is, is stable now. We're not a frontier uh, nation anymore for the most part. And so you know, there can be people who live in a bubble, and their bubble then moves with them, and they see all these horrible things that are going on that are in another part of the country, and they're aghast. But I think that's uh, – while slavery allowed all sorts of terrible things to continue in the South, it also allowed people to grow up in the North who – would are were aghast the limousine liberals of their day. Well, <laughs> I like, I, I'm more comfortable with you saying that. Than me. Uh, wrapping up here, um, I'm looking forward to seeing the uh, uh, next episode on PBS. Um, you can also watch uh, this episode uh, online uh, at uh, American Experience, and there's three episodes, so we can imagine that the next one is going to be featuring John Brown. I do want to say one thing though. I couldn't get over after I looked at the uh, five people here. That you know, five people is a great way to be able to tell uh, any sort of uh, dramatic story. My brain instantly went to uh, the Avengers, and oh. I, ha I have to say that th this is the uh, true, true nineteenth century story of the American Avengers. <laughs> and each has a counterpart. Who's the Hulk? Oh, John Brown. John Brown. John Brown is clearly course, the Hulk, yeah, yeah. Or, or maybe Thor. <laughs> so I'll take your nomination, Shelley. What, what do you? What do you uh, who would you uh, align with? Who, as far as the Avengers and uh, and the abolitionists? Goodness, well, yeah, you have to have John Brown as definitely the Hulk. Mm -hmm. But 
it's funny because you know when the Hulk isn't the Hulk, I would say Garrison. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Garrison right. and Brown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't think of who would be Garrison because, and I don't know who's cocky enough to be Iron Man in this scenario. <laughs> Well, you know, I was, I was, I was trying to figure that out, but I mean, you know, somebody's. Uh, uh, I was going to say Harriet Beecher Stowe is probably Captain America, maybe, uh, just yeah. so pure of heart. And Frederick Douglass, played by Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, <laughs> right. Wasn't he in it? Nick Fury. Yeah, Nick Fury, of course. There you go. Perfect. Connecting in with that, if you go to the American Experience site online. Visitors will see an interactive map displaying images and videos tagged to specific locations and telling the story of the abolitionists. This embedded map from a site called HistoryPin is the basis of our second topic. HistoryPin describes itself as a way for millions of people to come together from across different generations, cultures, and places to share small glimpses of the past and to build up the huge story of human history. Now, pinning maps and photos and videos to, uh, are nothing new. Uh, we've been doing that for some time ourselves with Google Earth and YouTube and Panoramio. But I think what really attracted me to History Pin is that anyone can come along and not only post old family photos and background, but to make those part of a greater theme. So joining us from History Pin is John Voss, who handles strategic partnership uh, for them, and uh, to talk about the abolitionist map and the potential for History Pin to tell stories interactively online. Uh, welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, you were involved with uh, American Experience integrating their story uh, into History Pin. Can you tell us how that came about? Well, we originally met the producers of American Experience at, our, at the History Pin launch at the Museum of City of New York in the summer of 2011 and started talking to them about the possibilities of integrating what we were doing with History Pin with the work that they've been doing at American Experience. Yeah, they've, they've been working on this for about four years, I know, as far as this particular series is concerned. And uh, as I was saying that, you know, if, if you click, for example, on the map um, of upstate New York and you see the uh, Clipford um, uh, John Brown gathers his arsenal, you also see three other, at least three other, um, pins uh, for that area. Um, Addison County Courthouse, uh, Frederick Douglass speech at the Great Convention, um, a sketch of uh, John Brown's homestead and so forth. And so these are all, and they're not all pinned by uh, American Experience. It's uh, uh, any number of people or organizations that are able to add to the story as well. So uh, that, that that is a great strength. Yeah, that's what's, I mean, I think that's what's interesting about this project. I mean, it's interesting about the history pin project overall, but particularly how it's been used with this film. And uh, it's certainly been a learning experience for us. I had no idea of the time it takes to put, you know, as you said, they've been working on this for about four years. And, and just to realize how much goes into these films, into the research and the production, et cetera. Um, what we were excited to be involved in particularly with is not only opening this up to, you know, the broader public to add their reflections on, on what's happening here, but also for uh, the relationships between the producers of, of the show and the content providers in which, you know, obviously when you're doing a, a historical program, you're going to be sourcing uh, images and audio, et cetera, from all kinds of cultural heritage institutions. And, and normally when you watch a, a documentary, a film like I do, I'll sit to the very end of it and, see, and watch for that scroll at the end where you're trying to pick out the different institutions. And this really mm -hmm. is a great way to bring that content and make connections to those institutions in, in a new way. So this is almost, it's like a, um, a bibliography that continues to grow 
and grow <laughs> and, and, and grow that as people add more content or, uh, and, and that's the thing is that anybody can pin um, part of their story to this map. Is that correct? Yeah. So they have a way, you know, they have the filters built in there, but, you know, ultimately you could start to put in your own, you know, your own associations with these things. Um, and, and you can see that there's a checkbox there for, you know, general users content or the producers content or cultural heritage partners. Right. Well, the, um, uh, the, the one thing that I was noticing is the map shows, uh, shown on the site goes um, on the, the regular history pin site goes back to 1840, and that coincides with the development of uh, photography. Um, mm -hmm. However, I noticed on the abolitionist map, it goes back to 1619, which coincides with the first time that slaves were brought to Jamestown. And so um, I was just kind of curious um, as far as that is that that option there is that that's something that was uh, used uh, specifically for American experience then? Yeah, exactly. Uh, essentially, what we did was we used the history pin framework and built it separately for this project. So we were able to do quite a few things differently to suit their needs. One of them was changing uh, the time. So you're exactly right that the history pin map does coincide with photography. It started as a photo project. And we're starting to look at, you know, how far back does it make sense to roll that as people are starting to pin artworks and sketches, drawings that precede that time frame. You know, we're looking at ourselves with uh, our own show as we're following the story of the first American voyage around the world, and that starts in 1787 and uh, effectively ends in 1794. And mm. so, uh, you know, we're, we're looking for that as well. So, but uh, I, I'm just um, uh, interested because, uh, you know, visitors can see what are called collections, um, which uh, gather around a, a, a theme as compared to another option for tours. Now, it, it is possible those could be confused. So what's, what's the real difference that you see between a tour and a collection? Yeah, they are very similar. The main difference is that the collections don't put anything in any kind of chronological order at all. Um, so you can, you can order the content, uh, but it, and it creates a slideshow view is one of the main things that you see with that. The tours gives you the ability to actually put things in order and add additional notations to them. So when you look at a tour, for instance, you'll see, and, and we see this a lot, you know, it's, it's heavily used by um, educational partners, teachers, the like. They might take a picture from the National Archives on the March on Washington in 1963, and then they can add additional information about that on the top right of that tour there. So in the collections, you really just have uh, a gathering of photos um, but with the tours, you're able to add more uh, information to that and tell more of a story or a narrative, if you will, based on not only your content, but other content that you can use from History Pin. Right. John, may I ask a question? This sure. is Ed. I I'm curious about um, the access people have to it. You said that people can add, and I'm, I'm just going on a very general understanding of this, but um, how do you... Uh, um, judge or uh, how do you determine the legitimacy or the authority of what people would uh, add to uh, a program like this? Yeah, we don't at all. We, we purposely don't put guidelines. I mean, we do yeah. have guidelines about what's appropriate material um, so that, you know, we can, you can flag and we take down inappropriate material, although we don't see much of that. Um, but in terms of the historical legitimacy, 
we don't claim to be experts. And in I fact, see. much of the work that we're doing on HistoryPin now, kind of on the research and development side, is revolving around how we, we look at the crowdsourcing of these materials. Not only people adding them, but how can a community um, change metadata or suggest changes to metadata in a way that's dynamic and intuitive, but also can be crowdsourced like you might see with, with uh, Wikipedia, for mm -hmm. instance. Uh, we're drawing a lot from that. So we're working on a two-year Mellon Foundation-funded pro project right now with Stanford University and the uh, Center for uh, Spatial and Textual Analysis there which is uh, really a two-year project to look at exactly that issue of how we can engage the public to um, make changes and recommendations that might aid in academic research. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, now, you're using um, Google Maps, and um, uh, I've also noticed that as far as the video content is concerned, it's all um, you can enter in uh, a YouTube URL as compared mm -hmm. to any of the other um, uh, online video sites. Um, but uh, for example, I was I was looking at the uh, the Chevy, the the, the Chevy uh, page, and right. uh, seeing all these uh, wonderful pictures of Chevys all over the world. In fact, um, and uh, even down in Chile and, and South and uh, um, looks like to be Santiago. But uh, right. I was also noticing. Um, uh, Street view, um, which is a 360-degree view of what an area looks like on the ground level. I was just going to ask you, what is HistoryPen's relationship with Google? Yeah, so we originally partnered with Google to create this project. And uh, so we use a lot of their technology. We use the maps and street view APIs. Um, so that's really where that comes from. They supported us uh, in the seed funding of the project. And um, that was back in 2010. Mm -hmm. And it was really around uh, how to, for, the, for their part, it was using um, their tools in a in more social setting for um, really interesting educational cultural heritage type components. And for us, it was about building conversations, you know, intergenerational, intercultural conversation around local history. Okay. Um, well, the, uh, the the other thing I was um, going to be asking is, well, I'm, I'm looking here, for example, at a map right now of um, uh, Cape Cod and seeing all the Chevys. I, I have to say some of the collections are great, though. The, the Chevy, Chevy one's great because you have everybody taking pictures. There was the 1967 Camaro Indy pace car um, that was uh, looks like it was pinned just down the street from us here. Um, hmm. And that's looking gorgeous. But everybody's posting pictures of their cars. And, and I ought to imagine that that is producing probably more pictures uh, than anything else, and they're all contemporary pictures, so or most of them are. Um, however, the one that I liked the most collection was um, the history of facial hair. <laughs> right, that was terrific to be able to see all these pictures from you know different decades, going back to the beginning of photography mm -hmm. of uh, you know uh, um, and and all over the world too, whether it's uh, someplace in uh, uh, Transcarpathia. Uh, <laughs> at the time, or, uh, or or some of these guys from the 1920s who look like they're straight out of um, the Keystone Cops. Uh, right. that, that's that's a great way to be able to, I think, you know, take pictures of um, you know old family photos and oh, yeah, it almost becomes a people's museum. Yeah, because you that's right. You might you might inspire people to go dig out from some shoebox a picture. I matter of fact, I just found a picture which uh, someone had scanned for us and, and repaired, and it's relatives who are would be 101 years old and mm. all of a sudden you see this picture and 
and and every little bit of it is is interesting to somebody. The clothing they're wearing, the hairstyles, as you mentioned, Andrew. So right, and 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 so, but anybody can go on and correct me if I'm wrong. They can go on and create a collection from pre-existing content. Yeah, that's right. So if you favorite, you can go through and favorite bits that you like, and then when you create a collection or a tour, you can just pull content from either what you've contributed or from other uh, things that you favorited. So that's, I mean, that's what's been so amazing about this project is there hasn't really been an experience where you've got so much cultural heritage data. Not only, you know, we're over 650 cultural heritage institutions now adding content, 40,000 users. So you've got this kind of great conglomerate. I like what you say with the People's Museum, that you can curate your own uh, story based on this content that's coming out there. Well, I'm know, thinking so. what you just said, John, a teacher could go on then create a collection that would bring together pictures from across various um, you know, decades and um, they might not normally be associated together, but then you, then you could tell your students, okay, here's the collection I want you to, to take a peek at. Yeah, yeah and, absolutely. That'd be great. And create a slideshow from that. Well, yeah, and the slideshow is fun too. You know, I, I often, um, National Archives has done a lot of great stuff, and, and they've put together a collection of Matthew Brady Civil War photographs, for instance. And, you know, some of those photos can be pretty brutal. They've, they've done kind of more of a G rated one for educational mm -hmm. purposes. Uh, and I, you know, I'll put that up on. I have a Google TV at home on the big screen, and I'll just put that up on uh, that slideshow on repeat and and let it play as a background. And it's just it's fascinating to see these photos, mm. which otherwise you might not discover. You know, it's kind of this this uh, random discovery mechanism in a way. Uh, those are the best kind of sites for for history buffs when you find those random things mm. that you know you might not see even if you searched you know Google Images. You're not going to see something that somebody had in their shoebox at home. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really a great way, I think. I think it sounds great. I'm looking at Boston now, looking at all these different pictures that I've never seen before. And all right. it's just fascinating. Cool. Well, thank you very much, John. I, I appreciate you coming on and uh, uh, giving us more information about that. I think what I'm going to do is uh, create a uh, uh, history of hats and then uh, it, and take go. the history of uh, facial hair, and we can create a history of fat <laughs> hats and facial hair uh, to, to get. I to like get, it. So anyway, tell us tell us about it, and we'll, we'll tweet it out for sure. I think we're we're losing the art of haberdashery. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be, that'd be really good. Well, it back. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, John. Uh, John Voss from um, History Pin, and uh, it's historypin.com. And uh, uh, also uh, check it out on the American Experience uh, Abolitionist site. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, and I look forward to uh, following along with the podcast. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Take care. Do you have a business and would like to get the attention of the smartest, hippest, and most educated audience? Then why not become a sponsor of this podcast? Get in on the ground floor and snag this precious spot right here. We could be talking about your business right now to a global audience. Just drop us a line at podcast at hitandrunhistory.com, tweet us at hitrunhistory, or message us through our Facebook page at facebook.com slash hitandrunhistory. Are you a literary agent, publisher's press representative, author, or history columnist? We'd love to hear from you. Give us a heads up on what you've got coming out. We're happy to program the most engaging and erudite guests. And if you're a fan of history and have an idea for something we could talk about, feel free to send us a note. 
Find us at facebook.com slash hitandrunhistory and let us know. Or tweet us at hitrunhistory. Or regular email at podcast at hitandrunhistory.com. If we use your idea, we'll mention you on the show. I should add, we're also looking for terrestrial radio partners. So if you have a favorite station, send them the link and ask them to consider carrying us. Well, nothing could be complete uh, talking about uh, the uh, middle of the 19th century, certainly without talking about food, especially food from New England. And joining us is uh, Kathleen Wall from Plymouth Plantation. And uh, Kathleen, what's your position there? I'm the um, food waste culinarian. So, and I chiefly deal in colonial food, and specifically the food of Plymouth Colony, which is 1620 to 1692. Um, but there are some things that go forward in time. And so um, there are certain foods that New England is famous for now, and they all began in the 1620s and 30s. So, I mean, there's a real continuity there. Well, I, th- I think that the, the, it used to be, I mean, when I was a kid especially, is that when people would talk about New England food, they'd talk about it the same way as Irish cuisine uh, or, 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 or English cuisine, which was uh, not great depth, but with, I think with the growth of um, the local food movement, people have really started to go back and look at recipes and using local ingredients, and they're, they're coming up with some things that are a lot more flavor, flavorful than what we had kind of become used to, but I think that was more along the, more a cause of the wonder breadization of, um, you know, the mid-20th century than anything else. Oh, definitely, but I think the mid-19th century actually was the beginning of that sort of blanding out of everything, and so yeah. a lot of things that were local and cheap, like shellfish like clams and lobsters and um, oysters uh, suddenly could be transported to other places. So there was a market for them. So you don't eat the things you can sell and get Mm. money for. Uh. You eat the things you can't sell. So suddenly those sorts of things move away and and other sorts of things take over. And so the diet Mm. in in many ways became more restricted. Um, Mm -hmm. And because things can be put up in cans, um, they got less seasonal because you can hold the can for any season, and so you can eat things out of season. So that sort mm-hmm. of so that was very high end. So, uh, gathering canned foods for the poor in the 19th century mm-hmm. was a way to really honor the poor. This was a, a big deal. Now canned goods are like, oh my goodness, you're reduced to eating yeah, that. Yeah. So you know, in a hundred years, that changed completely. So canned goods were, if you ate canned goods, it was a sign of wealth. It was, it was they were it expensive. S.S. Pierce symbol. was, you know, like you know, the better housewives could send their yeah. maids to S.S. Pierce, mm-hmm. um, or have S.S. Pierce deliver and have their maids receive mm-hmm. um, the goods for their kitchen. And um, but. Um, and other people ate out of their garden. You ate out of your garden because you were poor. It's so different now. Yeah, mm-hmm. Now you have to have yeah. enough room to have a garden. Yeah, well, well, tell me, tell me what you uh, uh, what you brought here today. So, um, on short notice, you wanted something uh, for, from the 19th century that said New England, and to me, that's Indian pudding. Mm. And the Indian part of Indian pudding is the cornmeal, the Indian meal. And in um, the Boston Cooking School cookbook by Mrs. Lincoln, who ran the school before Fanny Farmer took over, um, uh, she had a lot of recipes that were um, sent in by different people, and the um, Indian meal pudding was by a certain Mrs. Fonts of Plymouth. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is in the, in the 17th century. They're talking about using this cornmeal like hasty pudding. So they're cooking it with milk, and then they add the molasses to it. Um, there are lots of references to Indian meal pudding before there are any recipes written for it because it's one of those dishes that you just cook. Mm. Um, and there wasn't a cookbook published in America for American food until Mrs. Simmons in 
Amelia Simmons in 1795. So there's a, you know, we're a nation for a long time before we have our own indigenous cookbook. 170 years. And we're here for a long time before we have our own cookbook. So you can't just look at the cookbooks to say what's going on in New England or Philadelphia or Boston or New York. Um, You have to look at letters. Um, Now, I had always read that pudding in England mm -hmm. was different than what we call pudding and what Indian pudding is is closer to. In the 17th century, um, pudding essentially means, and the, the, the oldest usage of it is guts. Mm. Um, pudding, pudding, <laughs> yeah. pudding, puddings are something you put in guts, and so sausages are puddings. Right. And in the 17th century, if you wanted to buy sausages, and you, they were starting to call them just sausages then, you bought them from the pudding wives in London. Yeah. Um, and the pudding wives were often the widows um, or orphans of butchers in the city where the butchers' guilds were, and then the butchers would give all their odds bits for these women to chop up mm-hmm. and make into sausages to sell to right. maintain themselves. Children in Elizabethan England, when they were learning to walk, would wear on their heads something shaped like a a long sausage, which they called a pudding, which was meant to protect them in case they fell or bumped their heads or whatever. And so, but they changed. But but now but we then it, but it it's pudding. in the 16th century start to see puddings that are um, tied up in a bag, mm-hmm. and so like Christmas pudding, like mm-hmm. the you know infamous Charles Dickens right. Christmas Carol pudding. Mm-hmm. Those sorts of puddings come in in the middle of the 17th century. You start to see them baked in dishes, and so bread pudding leaves guts and goes into a baked dish, and it stays that way in New Orleans. God be praised, and huh. it's improved enormously. Mm-hmm. Um, rice puddings <laughs> leave guts and go into baked dishes. Yeah. Um, um, and other puddings have lots of different transformations. Um, and these hasty puddings come in, and they're generally flour-based of some sort because they're cooked very quickly. What's interesting is by the end of the 17th century, most hasty puddings are made of other sorts of things and not flour, and they take a really long time to cook. I mean, the irony with Indian meal pudding is that it takes really the best way to make it is seven or eight hours mm-hmm. in a low oven. Uh-huh. I've done it in a slow cooker because... Um, because I don't like leaving my oven on all night long. <laughs> um, and it just, and so that's, you know, that's it, my... And is that why they were called hasty puddings, going back to what you they said? They should they made in haste. And, and, they, and the quickly. 16th century references, oh, we, you know, we had a hasty pudding, which is um, made in less time than it takes to tell you about it. Yeah. Oh. You know, that to me sounds like it's, it's fast, unless they're being incredibly sarcastic. Right, right, um, right. But, that's Always great. possible. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's uh, get into this. Uh, no ice cream to go with it, but um, uh, the very traditional. So this is uh, <laughs> ye old ready whip. Yeah. yeah. Ye- <laughs> so we'll just yeah. throw some of that on there. A little Thank cream you. on top of your pudding is very very traditional. Mm. Um, ice cream in the 19th century again would see Indian pudding in the 19th century was not a fancy pudding that you would serve. The company. Thank it's you. what you ate for supper. It's what you ate for breakfast. It's what you ate with your pie for breakfast. Mm. Um, so it's um, and it's all really um, mm. easy to come by. Inexpensive ingredients: um, cornmeal, very inexpensive, no matter where you live. Um, milk, relatively inexpensive, no matter where you live. Molasses, still yeah. inexpensive. And in some places, instead of molasses, they would use sorghum. Mm-hmm. Or um, sometimes they called it country sugar, which would be like pumpkin sugar or other mm-hmm. sorts of sugars. I hadn't realized there were so many kinds of sugars. First of all, it's delicious. Oh, thank you. And I love Indian pudding. I bet. But, um, <laughs> oh, Shelly, you're not missing anything. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, Shelly. 
<laughs> That's okay. I'm, I'm writing all, all these tips down. I'm gonna make some of my own. <laughs> no, but... I never. I've heard the term hasty pudding so many times, and I've yeah. never known so much about it. Well, <laughs> and you know, all and, I knew was that there was such a thing as hasty pudding. And there's the Hasty Pudding Club at Harvard, which was initially a social club, and then there was a theatrical club that got joined to it. So. You know, it has, um, which in the, in the 19th century, again, it became known for its um, theatrics um, more than its, its social club, so. Mm. Well, this is, this, is this, this is the original New England comfort food. Yeah, it really is. And did you say people ate this separately, or it was not a quote-unquote dessert? It wasn't really a dessert. It was part of the meal, so it's like your porridge. Mm -hmm. um, and it's filling, and it's um, it, the, the sugar in it. Um, it's all just really pretty good for you. This one has eggs in it. I should have said that to you before I uh, let you eat it. Um, and some of the versions in the 19th century, it says you can use water instead of the eggs. You use um, a measured amount of water. Mm -hmm. So that makes it incredibly inexpensive, no mm -hmm. matter what time of year it is. And then, of course, we have the great fruit divide about Indian pudding. Because many of the 19th century recipes um, suggest adding cranberries or raisins, or even um, grated apple to it. Um, but there are a lot of people now who simply will not tolerate Indian pudding with mm. fruit in it. Mm. I have met these people. They have, <laughs> they have spit raisins out into their hand while they are talking about <laughs> eating Indian pudding, as if they were ever so many olive pits that I accidentally threw in. Um, so so there, really is, there really is a fruit divide. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, well, this is great. I, I got to invite the crew in here. Come on, Was gentlemen, you got to... You want, or in other words, good? was it all year long? Indian pudding is pretty much all season. Um, uh, I mean, your corn is harvested in yeah. the winter, but you, you keep it for all the year. Uh, milk by the 19th century is available all year round because the dairies are large enough. If you have just one cow, you don't have milk all year round. Hmm. If you, if you, well, you could, but not if you had to have an exceptional cow, and, hmm. um, and she wouldn't live very long. So, yeah. uh, so those are the you know, choices you have yeah. to make. But it, it was available. Um, Eggs were pretty easy to come by for most people. Um, and like I said, and then I started noticing all of these variations where you use water instead. So it's yeah. the sort of thing you can just put on the back of the stove. And, and you may eating. have said this, Kathleen, I apologize mm -hmm. if I don't remember, but in, in America, this goes back to Plymouth Colony? This goes to back to, it goes back to um, uh, 17th century New England. John Jocelyn writes about hasty puddings made with the maize corn. Yeah. Um, when in 1674, he mentions it specifically. Um, and so, and they're eating those sorts of things earlier on. And when you look at what Captain John Smith is writing in Virginia um, after 10 years there and what the people in Plymouth Colony are writing about in the 1630s, you start to see the same sort of development where, and they start to say, oh, yeah, this is what we're eating. Um, mm -hmm. And um, Did it make its way back to England, do we know? No, corn doesn't <clears throat> grow terribly well in England until they develop. It's not hot enough there. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to think of New England as the hot place, but our, our summers here summers are hot are enough <laughs> yeah. that we can grow things that, that that took years and years and years to grow terribly well in England. Mm. And um, and in England, when they started growing maize, it was for animal feed. It was, again, in the 19th century where you're starting feeding that to animals. Um, it was replacing hay, um, mm. not so much for people's tables. So this is, uh, this is what would have been eaten, or William Lloyd Garrison, after his uh, printing press was burned down, yeah. he drowned his sorrows yeah. uh, in, in, yeah. in some Indian pudding. Yeah. Uh, yeah, New England food is very molasses-based, which gets us back to slavery, too, right. um, because that, 
that trade um, with the, the Caribbean begins in the 17th century. And molasses and rum are very common here by the 1650s. Triangular um, trade. And um, so in many ways are supporting that slavery very early on yeah. um, with the sugar. And, um, but um, when you think of Boston food, it's um, Boston baked beans, which don't get Boston added to their name until the 19th century. Uh -huh. um, Boston brown bread, again, not Boston bread until the 19th century, and then Indian meal pudding. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Kathleen, thanks so much. Shelley, were you going to say something? Oh, no, I was just listening to all this lovely oh. food talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, getting hungry, that's all. <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, Kathleen, thank you very much for coming and bringing this. This is uh, wonderful, and we hope you'll come back, not just because you'd be bringing food, but <laughs> the, the, the history of food is, is the history of people. Mm -hmm. Anyway, as uh, we wrap this up, if, uh, what recommendations um, each one of you might have um, for some history-related uh, uh, notion that might have come to you. Um, but Shelly, I'll let you go first since you didn't have any Indian pudding. Hmm. <laughs> um, actually, if we're going to talk about um, some resources online, a really great place if you're into uh, strange history or, or mysteries in history is uh, historicmysteries.com. Is a is a website that I, I collaborate with uh, often, and they have some really great writers on there that like to talk about um, things like, you know, the Amber Room that, that disappeared um, from Russia during World War II and, and just, you know, those, those sorts of mysteries, you know, mobsters that go, that go missing, um, which may not be quite as mysterious as uh, we would like to think. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. Ed, do you have a... Well, the, the book that I, and I haven't quite finished it, but I've been enjoying it very much, is called Hellhound on His Trail which is the story of uh, the murder, the assassination of Martin Luther King. And it traces uh, James Earl Ray uh, and all his, um, his, from the time he was released from jail and talks about how he stalked King. And it's, uh, it, uh, Hampton Sides wrote it. And it's, uh, just, it's, it's compelling and, and very interesting. And as always, there's always more to the story than you ever thought there was. So I'm, I'm, what was the name of that again? It's called Hellhound on His Trail. Ah, and, thank you. Uh, Write that down. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, uh, all the little bits and pieces that you love in history that you just say, oh, I, ne I never realized that at all. And uh, so it's fascinating. Very well done. Right. Um, <coughs> Kathleen, do you have any anything that uh, well, has struck um, you recently that you might want to recommend to people? There, uh, I would just say Plymouth.org, P-L-I-M-O-T-H.org, because um, the pilgrims aren't just about Thanksgiving. Um, you know, they were um, in New England um, and their neighbors, the Wampanoags. We also have a lot of information about Wampanoag, so local native history through the course of the 17th century, which talk about is totally overlooked. So, And uh -huh. they're right here. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks. Um, and uh, the book I'm going to recommend here is um, one that uh, I'd gotten a I'd say about almost two years ago, and uh, I've been keep, kept on putting it off, and uh, I really wish I hadn't. Um, it's called Down at the Docks, and it's by Rory Nugent, and it's a um, more contemporary piece of um, history um, of the New Bedford waterfront. And we're talking about, you know, within it was it was written a few years ago, so we're we're talking about the mid aughts. Uh, so, you know, eight years ago, I'd say, or something like that. But it goes back into um, uh, further history uh, behind the uh, the whole fishing fleet 
um, in New Bedford and the characters around there and the development uh, of, of the whole thing from a, a whaling port and that really even started in Nantucket and then in, in many ways moved mm -hmm. over to New Bedford and then just uh, took off from there. You know, it, it really is quite fascinating that a place that is not out, you know, further out towards the, uh, the ocean um, is such a massively important and uh, um, economically powerful port as, uh, as New Bedford or, or some place that's further in, the, like New York or something like that. Is that uh, it, and so, of course, we, being on Cape Cod, hear all sorts of stories about uh, fishermen from New Bedford. Right. Um, but this is, it's fascinating. But also, Rory Nugent knows how to write. Mm. This is some, there's some great turns of phrases here. And just fascinating. So it's a, it's a it's a rich read, and so I took my time getting through it once I started because it was just so well mm. done. So um, and anyway, when did it come out, Andrew? That uh, came out first of all. It's published by Anchor Books, and it came out in 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 in, in, in well 2009. There you go. So, but uh, but a great book. Um, anyway. Uh, Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the Indian. Yeah. I can't yeah. even finish mine. It's so good. <laughs> but it's so filling. You can see why they love to have it. Oh, yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll have links to uh, the, um, all the, the books and everything that's mentioned here on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash hit and run history. Thanks so much. Great. Well, that's our show for this time. We look forward to many more. Thanks to John Voss and History Pen and Kathleen Wall in Plymouth Plantation. If you want to continue the conversation, find the Hit and Run History fan page and be sure to like us on Facebook. There you can find links to this podcast, links to the books and programs we've mentioned, as well as photos and videos from our travels around the world. As a bonus to those who live on the Mid and Lower Cape, you can catch a video of this podcast on Channel 99. And follow us as we follow the story of the Columbia Expedition, the first American voyage around the world, online, either at wgbh.org slash history, blip.tv slash hit and run history or on our youtube channel please subscribe to us on itunes this helps other people discover us raise our profile and make a better show just go to the itunes store and search for hit and run history please be sure to rate the show and leave a comment our audio producer is jay sheehan and our video producer is jamie horton for shelly barkley ed o'toole and all the hit and run history crew i'm andrew buckley thanks for listening and we'll talk again soon